Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Podcast, a podcast to discuss border-related legal issues. I'm Peter Edelman. I'm Steve Mirant. And uh, we're here today with uh, Tom Davidoff and Dave Eby. Uh, we're really gr- glad to have them both. Uh, Tom Davidoff is a, an associate professor in the uh, Sauter School of Business. Uh, he's the Stanley Hamilton uh, Professor in Real Estate Finance and has a, a resume that's more impressive than I'm going to try and uh, summarize here. Uh, Just mentioned Harvard. Just mentioned Harvard, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Among other schools that I would have never gotten into. Uh, the, uh, and Dave Eby, who is the, uh, the MLA for, um, Point Grey or West Point yeah, Grey? Vancouver Point Grey. Uh, Vancouver Point Grey. And, uh, the, and a longtime colleague of ours, uh, he was the former, uh, executive director of the uh, BC Civil Liberties Association and, uh, worked at, uh, Pivot among a number of other legal organizations over the years. So, uh, it's great to see you guys and to, to meet you as well. Yeah, so welcome. Uh, topic that we are discussing today is immigration and housing, which has become a very a topical issue in Vancouver. Um, I note in reviewing our podcast stats that only about 20% of our audience uh, is from Vancouver. So maybe if one of you could just provide an overview of what's been going on, even just in housing prices, ignoring the causes yet, just the trajectory that housing prices in Vancouver uh, have been on. Um, okay, I'll, uh, I'll start. Um, and uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Nice to see you guys. Uh, the, uh, 
there are a couple of key moments that define what's happening in the housing market in my mind. So uh, just in the past year and a half, Vancouver has won two honors uh, and they're dubious honors. One is that we are the least affordable housing market in the world, uh, according to a study done by a group called Demographia. And that's when incomes are compared to the cost of housing. And the second is we are the best luxury housing market in the world. Uh, because the top 10% of our real estate market appreciated at a higher level than any other real estate market anywhere in the world. Um, and the, those two statistics of having the highest appreciating luxury uh, end of the real estate market and the least affordable housing market um, really capture what's happening. That The high end of our real estate market has gone absolutely berserk with appreciations of uh, 20, 30, 40% year over year, uh, to Austin, uh, appreciation of 100% year over year. Um, and, uh, the, uh, condo market, uh, has appreciated on a level of, uh, uh, 30%, uh, 39%, uh, over the last couple of years. And, uh, what it means is that people who live and work in Metro Vancouver are having a really hard time finding a place to live. It has huge knock on effects on the rental housing market for people trying to find a place to rent that they can afford because a bunch of people who ordinarily would have gotten into the housing market are now renting. Um, and a lot of the homes that had basement suites are being torn down and replaced with luxury homes with no basement suites. Uh, so we're losing rental housing in that way. And uh, in terms of the big picture of what's happening in the housing market, I think it's best captured with a short story about a guy named Lawrence Fink, who's the head of a group called uh, BlackRock, which is the world's largest investment fund, uh, private investment fund anywhere. It's an American company with $4.3 trillion under management. And when Mr. Fink was addressing a group of international investors in Singapore, international investment fund managers in Singapore, uh, he told them that uh, gold was done, the resource plays were out, and that there were two things our clients should be thinking about investing in. One was modern art, and the other was condos, and in three particular cities, in Manhattan, uh, in London, England, and Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it was shortly after that that the Vancouver, city of Vancouver released data that indicated that 10% of our condos are vacant year-round, um, which is about two to three years of new build construction. And that was before Mr. Fink advised uh, the world's investment managers to buy condos in Vancouver as a good investment. So that gives you, your listeners, maybe a bit of an overview about why there's concern about international money in our housing market, about why there's concern about the pace of appreciation in the housing market, and about how out of whack housing prices are now with the amount of money you can actually earn here because incomes have been flat uh, throughout the entire period that I'm telling you about. Uh, they have not appreciated even at the level of uh, inflation, which is um, around 2%. So you mentioned in there international money. So I guess we, you know, you provided a great overview of the trajectory that housing prices have gone on. Um, I know I'm, well, I'm 32 and I know in my circle of friends, there's just this assumption that none of us will ever get a detached house in Vancouver, if not increasingly the lower mainland, but obviously someone's buying houses. So where is the money coming from? And I know that uh, until recently there was, I don't even know if there's data on it. Um, I know for the longest time they said there was no data on it. Uh, do we know where where is the money coming from or what percentage of buyers are, and we're going to have to make this distinction soon, foreign as in immigrant or simply people who aren't Canadian or permanent residents. Yeah, so uh, I think that's an important distinction. The Ministry of Finance, uh, starting uh, late spring, early summer, started to track nationality 
uh, of buyers, and uh, so they would differentiate between um, permanent resident or citizen versus not. Now, uh, so naturally, if somebody comes in, for example, on Quebec investor immigrant, uh, they'd have permanent residency status and count uh, as non-foreign. And I, I, you know, foreign isn't something that necessarily has a, a meaningful definition, but uh, according to uh, the definition used by the Ministry of Finance, there's one month, I think May or June, the first numbers came in and it seemed very low, something like 5% of all transactions in Metro Vancouver. They were punching above their weight, the foreign buyers, as they're generally affluent. So it was something like 7% of the value. But then the next month, uh, June or July, that number had ticked up and it was 10% for the overall period, maybe 15%. We know the single family market started dying off around May. Transactions have been uh, declining even before this 15% tax, I'm sure we'll start talking about. And so my best guess is, you know, if you were in March or April, you were probably in the 15 to 20% range. Uh, totally foreign in the sense of not permanent resident, uh, not citizen, uh, buying real estate in Metro Vancouver. And they've been counting what foreign means, and it pretty much means mainland China at this point. It's a large majority. I don't remember the percentage, but I think north of 75% of foreign buyers uh, today are mainland China. And that matches uh, some data that's been coming out about just massive capital outflows from mainland China in the last year, just giant dollar numbers. And uh, of course, there's a strong interest in Vancouver real estate for lots of reasons among mainland Chinese. Uh, and of course, you can't blame uh, mainland Chinese for wanting to get money out of China where governance is atrocious and investment choices are limited and not necessarily trustworthy. And the uh, climate is, is, is not healthy for bringing up children either educationally, politically, or just literally the air you breathe. Uh, so you add all that together, and there's been tremendous pressure uh, on the Vancouver market, particularly, as you mentioned, single family, and as Dave mentioned, also condo. Are there stats that also track amongst the permanent residents how many of the housing transactions are done by people who are non-resident for tax purposes? So they came through, say, the Quebec Investor Program. Maybe they didn't reside in Quebec for any meaningful period, and then came to British Columbia, bought a house or two, and now are back overseas. Uh, they're not foreigners under that description, but is there something that tracks non-residents, non-tax residents? Um, the, one of the key uh, policy responses uh, that we've been pushing for, uh, and I say we, I mean the BC NDP, is uh, to encourage the provincial government to connect the income tax data that they have, because they collect provincial income tax, they have that data, uh, with land transaction data to identify actually the number of people who are purchasing property or the value of property purchased by people who are not resident for the purposes of income tax. So people who aren't paying income tax here but are uh, buying property here. And the reason for that is it seems like income tax is the best proxy we have for the value that we have that people when um, they're buying property here, our goal would be, uh, as a political party, that they would be here and working and participating and contributing. And the best proxy we have for that 
is income tax. If you're paying your income tax, you're probably a resident here, probably um, you're working here, probably you're participating in the community. If you're not, uh, you're probably an absentee investor. You're uh, participating and and uh, somewhere else and building up somewhere else, uh, and you're bringing uh, money here to buy property uh, using property as an investment, like pork bellies or gold or anything else. And unfortunately, that investment has a deleterious effect on the growth in the Metro Vancouver area that we'd like to see, like in the tech sector or uh, among uh, families. We'd like to see people uh, being able to live and, and stay in Metro Vancouver and not be chased out because of house values. So. Our suggestion was if you link the income tax data with the land transaction data, you could actually spot this. And it's a much better uh, predictor, we believe, of what we're trying to achieve with this 15% tax than what passport you hold. So simply because you hold an international passport, whether it's Chinese passport, American passport, whatever, British passport, and you're buying property here, you might be uh, uh, somebody that was recruited to come here by a tech firm, by UBC, by SFU, a highly sought after academic or an expert in a particular technology that is a critical person to help build uh, our economy. Um, and, uh, and all of a sudden, this person who is highly sought after by countries around the world uh, is being told um, that they have to pay an extra tax, even though they're living, working and paying taxes here, and they were actually recruited to come here. So that kind of blunt instrument of saying you have to pay an extra tax if you're a foreigner, as opposed to another indicator, which is if you're living, working, and paying taxes here, um, it seemed to us uh, to, to not be particularly as effective. And the problem is uh, that we still don't have that data. So we have data about how many people holding foreign passports are buying property. What I know is that people are emailing my office saying, listen, I came up here as a skilled worker. My whole family's here. We bought a place. We want to stay here, and we aren't able to afford the place that we signed a pre-sale agreement for, or we're supposed to close on this deal, and I can't afford it anymore because this tax retroactively applied to my transaction. Do you want to provide maybe a little more details on the tax for those who might not know the a fifteen percent property sure, transfer yeah. tax? Yeah, yeah. Basically, anyone now who wants to buy property in Metro Vancouver, which includes Vancouver proper as well as the suburbs. Um, has to pay an extra 15% property transfer tax, which is uh, basically like a sales tax on property. If they don't hold a Canadian passport, they're not a permanent resident uh, or a citizen, um, you've got to pay it. So if you're here on a work permit, um, that would include you if you're, if you're not a permanent resident or a citizen. And I guess, my when I think about this in terms of when you're talking about rental properties, for example, and a lot of the investors here will invest, they'll own dozens of rental properties. Uh, why does it make a difference if the investor lives in Vancouver versus they live in Calgary versus they live in Washington State in terms of the rental market? Is there, does that make a difference to the rental market or are we just talking about the, the real estate ownership market? Yeah, you know, I think uh, there's the tax policy and there's where policy ought to be and... Uh, what Dave and I worked together on was a proposal which said, if you're a landlord and you're reporting uh, rental income, you know, you're not, that, that's fine. <laughs> you're, you, you, no extra tax. Uh, if you're a, uh, if you own a property and you're paying income tax, participating in the economy, great, you're off the hook. If you own a property and it's not your tax residence, well, then you're going to have to kick up extra uh, because you are using uh, property, which is the scarce resource around here, uh, and not paying into the tax system otherwise. Really, I think you want to take a step back 
and say, what should our tax system look like in a place with a decent economy and a fantastic real estate market where, because of the mountains and oceans and government regulation, it's very difficult to add value to the existing real estate stock? And the answer you come up with is you tax the scarce resource. So you'd have high property taxes, you'd have low income taxes and low sales taxes, which would create a very dynamic economy with lots of immigration uh, and indeed lots of uh, building too, probably, because uh, the real estate, while it would be less valuable because of the tax, would be more valuable because of the presence of a dynamic economy. We've chosen to go in an entirely different route uh, in British Columbia with very low property tax rates by international standards but pretty heavy income and sales taxes. So we punish the act of living, working, and doing business uh, around Vancouver, and we reward uh, real estate investment. So let's take your case of somebody who owns a rental property. Uh, you know, they're providing workforce housing. Some, somebody's occupying it, presumably, as a renter. Somebody lives, lives and works here. You know, is that something you want to tax uh, heavily? Not necessarily. If you have a vacation home and you're from Calgary, like you say, or Toronto, yeah, I'd put that in the same class as Beijing, Shanghai, or Brooklyn. I think also for, and I'm not sure why it would be the case, but I noticed when I was looking uh, last year when I switched apartments that rents were higher, it seemed, where the owner wasn't local. And I don't know if that's because there was often a property management company uh, intervening whose job was to maximize the rent, not caring so much about who the tenant was, but where the money is coming in. Um, I would suspect that rents are higher when you have that one person who's engaged a property management company to try to manage all the properties. Well, the, the variation in rents that you'll see listed on Craigslist for what looks like the same product, particularly for family housing, is phenomenal. Yeah. So even knowing the level of rents for a given quality is hard because I think you're right, there's a lot of heterogeneity. And anecdotally, I as well have heard professional management companies are going to hold your feet to the fire. They're going to get the maximum rent increase they can. If it's a fixed-term lease, they'll say, you know, we're going to re-up, forget rent control. Uh, etc. Whereas uh, a townie who's owned a property for a long time might have an idea, geez, 2000 is a lot for a three-bedroom home. You know, that's more than I, I need, and I'll, I'll keep the rent at that level. Uh, you're starting to see competition for place, places. There's some startup companies uh, getting into the business of actually having people bid uh, for apartments rather than taking the list price. And I, I actually think that sort of professionalization makes a lot of sense, and I suspect will converge over time to a much higher rental level than people are used to. Yeah, now one of the things I hear from some homeowners is, um, and it goes back to almost microeconomics 101, that if everybody wants to live by the beach, the price of houses on the beach is going to go up such that not everyone can afford to live on the beach. So why should, uh, and this is something I hear about, I guess, my generation, why should my generation think that we should be able to live, say, in the city of Vancouver and not be out in the burbs if that's what market prices are dictating? Well, Dave and I may, may disagree on this, and I'll, I want him to take a swing at that one. Uh, I don't think there is a right uh, to occupy A-plus real estate. I don't think anybody has a right to a detached house on Point Grey Road. I think that's preposterous. Uh, but I do think providing people a chance to live and work with a decent commute is totally reasonable. And here's where I get into zoning. You know, we're so far from the free market, and lots of people will say that, well, the market doesn't let you work in Vancouver and live next to the beach. So be it. And I, that's fine. 
But the market would build 50-story apartment buildings throughout the west side of Vancouver. That's what a free market would look like. A free market would never in a million years have depreciated single-family homes or even luxury single-family homes anywhere on the west side of Vancouver. So because of zoning regulations, we forbid uh, millennial-friendly housing in almost all the land in Vancouver. So yes, uh, I think it's fine to say to people, uh, you know, pretty much we should make sure people have an adequate income to meet their needs, and then luxury real estate is going to be for rich people. Uh, but if you're going to put your thumb on the scale uh, against affordability with your zoning, I think your tax and regulatory policy uh, needs to recognize that. That was good because I was going to ask you how how it is that this problem gets dealt with in places like Monaco and Tokyo, and uh, there, there there are a number of places in the world where the similar problem arises, where you have higher demand, a high demand for a limited resource. Um, and is that the answer? Is that that's why Tokyo is looks the way it does? Is that you just build up uh, and you don't you couldn't have Tokyo with single detached houses? Is that is that a, a very simplistic way of putting it. Tokyo is an interesting example because my understanding is Japan doesn't allow immigration. They just have a lot of people. I guess that's the... Well, I well, think well, we'll need to talk yeah, about this afterwards because yeah. it's not clear to me from what we're talking about that maybe this isn't an immigration problem or, or at least maybe that's that's a very small part of it. It sounds like this is an investment problem but maybe we can talk about that a bit more afterwards. Sorry, and I, I cut you off because I know that Dave had some views on what we were talking about a second ago. No, I mean, I agree with you in the sense that this is not uh, uh, immigration problem in the sense of population growth. I mean, we know what population is going to do in Metro Vancouver. It's very predictable. The growth models have been fairly consistent, and and uh, we know what's going to happen in Metro Vancouver in terms of population. So we know that we do need to increase density, and I agree with Tom on that. The issue around increasing density, at least in the neighborhoods that I represent, is um, that people believe that if you increase density, all you're going to do is build uh, one bedroom or bachelor condominiums uh, or housing for absentee investors, that it won't be housing that'll be available for local workforce. And I, I actually believe that the, um, the scarcity argument around land is a bit of a fictitious one. Uh, you know, even in my constituency of Vancouver Point Grey, a 33-acre parcel was just sold by the provincial government for a, a couple hundred million dollars. And if they had chosen to, they could have worked with the First Nations who bought it to do an amazing uh, uh, housing development for uh, people who live and work in Vancouver. TransLink just sold a, a half a billion dollar property. TransLink is our public transportation authority uh, near Oak Ridge, uh, where literally tens of thousands of people are going to be living. And it was sold to the highest bidder, and that money will be recovered through building luxury-style condominiums for um, investors, pied a terre whatever. We don't see three-bedroom condos for families. We don't see housing that's built for local workforce. And so until you address the issues, I agree with the economists at, I think it was at TD, who said you need to do it in a certain order. You deal with the international money in the housing market. You deal with the, uh, the speculation um, that's happening domestically and internationally. And then you deal with your land use policies, because if you do it in the opposite direction, then what you do is you basically facilitate more and more speculation and investment in the housing market. And so I really think that in order to get the social license for increased density, and in order to make sure that we're not just building new housing for absentee investors and speculators, um, we need to deal with that part first. And then we can talk about how we uh, use public assets like land or imaginary assets like density in order to facilitate affordability. 
Uh, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with Dave in the following sense, which is Vancouver, uh, it's not a monopoly, but it's in a, a small number of cities that have natural amenity, uh, a strong international community and sophistication and tolerance, and the U.S. may be uh, is on the verge of voting itself out of that club on the Pacific coast. Uh, it, so it, it's a small number of cities where a wealthy guy from all over the world might live, but Vancouver is small. You know, a Toronto or New York, can Russian billionaires really drive uh, the tech and finance workers out? That's hard to necessarily believe. It's a bit of a stretch. But Vancouver is a small market. Uh, in the long run, uh, wealthy investors are going to outbid locals. And, you know, maybe that's fine as a long run, but we have a lot of policy uh, arrows in our quiver still. You know, in the U.S., mortgage interest and property taxes are deductions from your income tax. And so if you pay a high uh, income tax rate, you're getting something like a percent and a half of the value of your house every year for free from the government because you're a taxpayer. That's not available to an international buyer unless uh, they're part of the workforce. Vancouver has no such deductibility. Now, the deductibility is a lousy policy, but you can uh, put your thumb on the scale in favor of the workforce. And I think for a, uh, you know, it's a bit of nationalism. It's a bit of let's protect uh, the workforce. But consider UBC, when we try to hire professors, we have to jump through so many hoops because we think it's important to protect the local, the Canadian workforce. Uh, for its ability to work, and we don't think they should compete on a level playing field with workers from around the world. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but it's so grotesquely inconsistent with that principle to say, by contrast, to be able to have a roof over your head in Metro Vancouver, you know, you're on your own and we're going to put you uh, on the international demand curve, whereas we're going to protect the labor supply curve. So it's really inconsistent policy until recently, and I think what we're circling around on is it was a bit of a broad brush to paint to say we're going to say it's not whether you live and work in Vancouver, it's whether you're from another country originally. So UBC is actually an interesting example of your kind of segues into another question that I had, which was there was a lot of media coverage given to somebody who had a really expensive house in the West Side who was a student. And I think as the number or percentage, I don't even know if the percentage of international students is increasing. But the amount of capital that comes with an international student is such that, um, you know, rather than living in basement suites, a lot of parents are going to buy their international students who live in Vancouver houses. Has there been any, like when we're talking about the immigration problem, is the fact that foreign students are buying and living in houses part of this problem? Well, I think we have an issue with um, transparency around what's called the beneficial ownership of property, which is the question of who actually owns the property. So you could conceive of a world in which a sort of richy rich uh, student, referring to the comic strip uh, character, uh, purchases a $31 million house on the west side of Vancouver, which is what we were told happened uh, in relation to a home that was previously owned by a very successful mutual fund manager who uh, did very well in the financial world and everyone knows why he can afford a $31 million house. The house was sold to a student, um, who, uh, a music student, uh, as I understand it, uh, who had no apparent source of income to support the purchase uh, as a student. And so it led to the inevitable questions of, okay, well, where's the money coming from? 
And uh, in fact, the owner of the home, Peter Brown, went to the media and said, well, the student, of course, isn't the owner of the home. The, the parents bought the home. And they, what they're doing is, uh, is estate planning and tax planning. And it's all perfectly acceptable in Peter Brown's vision of the world um, that that is what would happen in our housing market is that we wouldn't actually know who's buying the homes uh, or where the money's coming from uh, because of estate planning or tax. I disagree with that. I think we should actually know who's buying property. I think we should know where the money is coming from. It seems quite straightforward to me that Revenue Canada uh, should be able to access that information uh, for the purpose of, of uh, applying taxes appropriately. We have a situation in Metro Vancouver where we have neighborhoods with poverty level incomes where people are buying million dollar homes. And to my mind, as someone who cares about public services, about schools, hospitals, roads, and so on, that's not a sustainable situation. And so it may well be tax planning um, and that our rules uh, encourage and allow that kind of tax planning. But I think we should address those policy loopholes. So in fact, we had nine students buy um, $57 million worth of property on the west side of Vancouver. When I released that information, the premier said that she doubted uh, source, which was me, uh, and I released uh, the addresses and the names. And in hindsight, and in another study, a, a large number of homemakers and students who were also buying property in the neighborhood called Mackenzie Heights. In hindsight, I wouldn't do that again. Um, even though the information was public, all of the names of all of the homemakers and all the students were all ethnically Chinese names. And what happened was, uh, although in the press conferences I stressed, look, you know, there's, uh, there's uh, definitely an influx of uh, new arrivals from China right now. Uh, this one neighborhood that we chose may be disproportionately uh, uh, new arrivals from China or ethnically Chinese. Please don't conclude from the information that I'm releasing that that this is a Chinese problem or Chinese people are somehow Chinese expats are somehow evading taxes. What I'm trying to identify is the policy issue. And of course, right, of course, and it was naive to believe otherwise. Uh... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. More than half of the media stories about uh, the data that I released mentioned that all the names were Chinese. And, and sort of inviting the reader to... They didn't say, you know, which suggests that there's a problem in this community with tax, with paying taxes or anything like that. But it was just enough that, you know, that my, then my inbox fills up with uh, emails from people who are racist who say, you know, thank you for taking it to the, to the Chinese who are evading taxes and blah, 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 and, and buying our whole city and all this kind of awful stuff. Yeah, I think I heard the Trump comparison made. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and it's sort of, uh, it's, uh, it's very, um, anyway, it's something that I explicitly tried to address in the press conference, but it's, it's why in this, uh, area it's so difficult to have the conversation because the current wave of 
immigration is from China, and there's always concerns about immigration. Now, do you think that makes it like, so there's two reasons that it seems especially difficult to address. And the first is, um, it's hard to tread into investigating this without there being allegations of racism. I think the Canada Revenue Agency, there was a story in the Globe that an auditor had leaked that they knew or know that there is a problem and were specifically told in meetings, don't go anywhere near it because we're going to be perceived as being anti-Chinese. The second issue is, is it at a point now where the problem is almost too big to combat, which is too many people have their money tied into really inflated housing values and anything that would cause that to depreciate it. What was interesting, too, about the 15% tax was it was never made clear what the goal was. Was it to level that housing? Was it to cause it to decrease? But any decrease that would happen would cause, I mean, from what I understand, real estate now is one of the biggest, if not the driving force in the economy, and there would have been a hike to MSP had it not been for all the property transfer tax. Is the problem just too big to combat and too controversial because of the accusations of racism that arise. So, so let me say a couple things. First of all, Vancouver is always going to be expensive. If you bought in Vancouver long ago, uh, your house is going to be worth a lot more than you bought it for forever, definitely. Why is that? It's not just that it's hard to build in Vancouver. It turns out what matters in the economic theory of paper, I'm writing with some colleagues, it's not on average we've got mountains and oceans. The problem gets worse and worse the farther you get out, right? You run into more and more mountains, more and more U.S. border, more and more ocean, ocean as you move out uh, into the uh, segments uh, where there's buildable land. And so it's always going to be expensive. People are always going to want to live here. People are getting richer around the world. Homeowners are going to be fine. If you bought in the last year, however, there is a risk. And to the economy, there's a risk. We've become very uh, real estate addicted. Uh, I think real estate has essentially been our uh, number one export. And uh, maybe not number one, but definitely right up there, weed, yoga, uh, lumber, et cetera. <laughs> and we're getting pretty blue. Yeah, you have to see through spandex. So um, it, people are going to be fine, but there is this risk to the economy. And like you say, the more uh, real estate-centric our economy becomes, the greater the risk. So I like to say taxing Chinese people mostly is not exactly profiles and courage. <clears throat> However... If you think about the sustainability of this 15% tax, there is a risk. I believe if you take foreign buyers out of the equation, if you start from 20, 15, 20% of the market and you eliminate that and you eliminate an expectation that that number is going to grow over time, I believe that could lead to something along the lines of a 40% drop in prices. That would be terrible for the economy, terrible for a lot of uh, homeowners. And so... You know, you have this issue now where we don't know where prices are going, and there's tremendous uncertainty uh, because we don't know where policy is going either. So, uh, yes, I think for years and years, uh, with, I think, inefficient and unfair tax policy, we invited the problem because relative to the U.S., we rolled out the red carpet for international investments. We then took a draconian step uh, to limit international investments. And we find ourselves today with very few transactions on the market and just unbelievable uncertainty as to where prices are going. And as a result, I think a lot of uncertainty about what the future policy environment is going to be, yes. So the longer we waited uh, to do something about a problem that was 100% foreseeable, uh, the bigger of a problem it became in 
as you say, harder and harder to address without serious impacts. In the last two years, uh, the average detached home uh, went up $600,000 in value. It's just the last two years in Metro Vancouver. And so that's a huge increase. And that's why you see the federal government coming in with new mortgage rules saying, hey, millennials, if you don't qualify uh, for a mortgage on what we expect the interest rate to be five years from now, you're not going to get a, a mortgage. And uh, why they're reeling stuff back in because uh, federally in Canada, taxpayers guarantee mortgages. It's not the banks that underwrite the mortgages. The banks aren't on the hook if there's suddenly a bunch of defaults because interest rates go up. It's all of the taxpayers in Canada who have insured all these mortgages through CMHC um, that are on the hook if there's a bunch of mortgage defaults. So we should all be a little bit worried about the fact that UBS, which is a large European bank, said that uh, Vancouver's housing uh, risk of a of being in a housing bubble and that housing bubble collapsing uh, was uh, the highest of anywhere in the world. We think we are the biggest risk housing market according to their math. Um, and given that Canadian taxpayers pairs are underwriting the risk, if that housing market does uh, go south, is something that we should all be concerned about. And, and frankly, we should be wondering about what the steps are that we can be taking for a, for a soft landing to avoid the, the outright collapse, which would be uh, quite devastating to our real estate dependent economy, which for the first time took in more revenue from real estate than from uh, resource extraction, uh, whether it's lumber or mining or whatever, uh, in the history of the province. It's never happened before that happened this year. But how big a landing would we need to make Vancouver's housing situation similar in affordability to an Edmonton, a Winnipeg, a Montreal? Yeah, so we would need in- incomes here would have to double or our housing market would have to collapse by 50% to match the affordability of Toronto, which is the statistic that I find incredibly uh, both depressing and remarkable. Let me just say, now I'm American and I'll confess to that. And by the way, I would have been caught up, not grandfathered into this 15% tax. I came to UBC, I thought I'd get all my I's <laughs> dotted, T's crossed, and buy a place before I got there. And of course, had the tax come in uh, before I was able to close, I, I would have been subject to this tax. So take what I say about the landscape of Canadian cities with some grain of salt. But uh, Vancouver's level of amenity, in my view, is very, very high uh, with the mountains and oceans and climate. So I think you should pay a premium to live here. That is, you should either get a lower wage or uh, pay a higher price than you do in a place like Toronto, Edmonton, God forbid, Winnipeg. Uh, So we should be unaffordable. uh, But the level of unaffordability, remember, just in the last year in terms of purchasing has gotten 40% worse which is staggering. I mean, you just don't see 40% price increases in a year. And rents, disturbingly, uh, which rents, Vancouver's always been a cheap place to rent, but remarkably for the quality of city it is, that, as we've talked about at the beginning, is beginning to go away as well, especially at the lower end where you, where you worry the most. And the cities, is it Vancouver, do, that is? Is it limited to Vancouver or the whole area? For rent increases. You know, we have such lousy data. I've been yeah. scraping Craigslist enough. I need some lawyers to help me continue <laughs> to do that. Uh, but uh, it looks like on an annual basis, about 17% greater Vancouver, whatever Craigslist yeah. lists. But I will say the smaller the property and the worse the location, the higher the rent increase has been. And I think that is people priced out of entering the housing market. This uh, growth, millennials are starting to form households. And there's a lot of pressure uh, without a lot of supply. So just the domestic market's a problem. And I think that's interacted uh, with strong international demand to cause a real problem, both just at the level of uh, roof over your head, as well as being able to fulfill the North American dream of ownership. 
Yeah. I've always, like, I've been thinking recently and discussing with friends, like, we're going to reach a point, city of Vancouver especially, I don't know what the ratio is yet of citizens who own, in other words, voters who own versus mm-hmm. voters who rent. And when that number tilts to where there's more voters who rent, I think a lot of them will say, bring on the 50%. Uh, if that's the only way we're going to afford to live here, uh, you know, if someone's assets are going to go from 2 million to 1 million, uh, while, you know, a younger renting generation is looking at tens of thousands of dollars, uh, it'll be, you know, bring out the violins for a reduction that still leaves someone a million. Well, you know, Vancouver, the city actually just imposed a policy, which I like to say, uh, in the words of the guy who I thought used to be the worst guy ever to run for president, is badly misunderestimated. And that's the so-called vacancy tax. It's not a tax on vacant units, which I think any lawyer would recognize as the worst base for a tax you can imagine because it's both impossible to observe and easy to uh, avoid. But uh, what the tax really is, is it does the person, is the person who lives there using this place, uh, or is either the owner or a tenant using this as their primary residence. And that's exactly saying that this is not workforce housing. It's going to be subject to a high rate of tax. And I think people have misunderestimated this family. They don't understand the policy, and I don't know that they see the impact as very uh, renter-friendly because Airbnb is going to become economical, having a vacation place is going to be uh, uneconomical, and if Dave's integration with CRA happens, it's going to be uneconomical uh, not to uh, declare your global income if you have the so-called astronaut family structure, which I think is probably more important as a sort of purchasing strategy. That is, the parent uh, lead earner is earning money overseas, not declaring uh, income in Canada, and the rest of the family occupies the place. If you shared the claim that this is a personal residence with CRA, they could come back to the family and say, geez, you know, this is a five million residence, and it's somebody's personal residence. It doesn't add up that you're declaring 10,000 bucks of income. So I think that was a very positive step, and I think it probably does reflect a view that it's not just homeowners uh, who voted Vancouver. But I guess one of the things that comes up for me in terms of this question, and this is when I see both with respect to your own experience in terms of immigration, but just in general when you have people coming into the community, there seems to be underlying the entire discussion, and with respect to what Steve's saying as well, where there's a there seems to be a focus on home ownership as a goal. And my sense in terms of living in other places in the world is that the levels of home ownership are very different in different parts of the world. And where you see very low levels of home ownership in places like Switzerland or other places, just in terms, relatively speaking, um, where it's just normal for people to rent for their whole lives, right? That's just a normal thing. New York would be a good example of that, where you have people who actually look for, you know, and, and they just expect to be renting. Um, and as Vancouver's population grows, which it's going to grow and whatever the rate might be, it's going to grow one way or the other. There's going to be less detached homes. I mean, there's just not, you're not, there's nowhere else to build a detached home in Vancouver. Unless maybe if you knock down some of the $31 million homes and, and we can have another discussion about whether there is some value in having $31 million homes at all. But I think that's a separate argument. But I guess the question for me is, is, is this about a value that we place on the idea of owning a detached home that just needs, we, is just not a value that's realistic in Vancouver anymore? Um, and that what we're really talking about is the use value or, ha- or ultimately it's, it's a zoning issue. 
I mean, ultimately what we're talking about is how does this stuff get used and how does the property or the, or the space in Vancouver get used by a growing population? Um, so yeah, I, said, yeah oh. I think, I mean, so there, there are two kind of responses that I have to, to what you put forward there. The first is it's often put forward that um, what people want in Vancouver in terms of housing who are raising concerns about affordability is a detached home. Um, in my experience, uh, the vast majority of people who have come forward to express concerns about affordability would just like, you know, a room for their kids, a uh, room for grandma and grandpa to visit when they come over. So a three-bedroom apartment, a townhome, they understand that they're in a city. Um, I had a, a housing town hall with 700 people who came out, uh, which is unprecedented in my experience. This is three years as an elected official that people were so passionate about an issue. And it was, and the, the issue is not that um, people have a belief that they're entitled to a certain level of housing if they have a certain level of income. The question is, what, what do we do as policymakers around that? Do we try to convince people that they don't have, they shouldn't believe that they have the right to purchase a home at a certain level of income, uh, in, in which I include a three-bedroom condo or a townhome or whatever? Uh, or do we recognize that we're in competition for a certain group of uh, professionals, uh, uh, entrepreneurs, investors, academics, and so on with places around the world, and people, this group, values the idea that they should be able to own a home for their family. And so is there a way that we can facilitate that to make sure that our economy grows the way that we'd like to? Because person after person at the microphone at my town hall, this is the west side of Vancouver, it's the second most affluent community in British Columbia. Uh, Colchena is the, is the number one, which is right next door. And it was like, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an engineer, I work in financial services, I earn way above the median income, I can't afford to live here with my family. This is crazy. So we're looking at going somewhere else. And so there are long-term policy consequences to the belief uh, that people have that they should be able to own their home. And it is definitely a North American view. And uh, but the, the problem is, I don't think we're going to be able to convince people, as, uh, as Bob Rennie is trying to do, that they don't uh, have a right uh, to own a home at a certain level of income. Uh, that they should that they should accept that they're going to have to live in Surrey and commute into Vancouver um, because people are not going to believe that and they're going to say you know what we're going to go to Seattle we're going to go to New York we're going to go, we're going to go to Toronto we're going to go to Montreal we're going to go to where actually um, in, in New York for example yeah property values are higher but wages are way higher and uh, and theoretically as a professional you can compete there and and I don't want to idealize the housing market in New York by any stretch but I just want to say we were the least affordable housing market in the world including New York, uh, when wages were compared to the cost of housing. So, um, you know, there, we're in a competition globally for this kind of uh, skill set and these kinds of um, uh, uh, professionals. And so if they decide to leave uh, en masse, then you would hope that our education system is training up a bunch of people to stay here. Um, but we're not doing that either. Uh, in order to get in university, tuition is so expensive and on and on and on. So, um We've got a major issue ahead of us if we don't address this. And the belief is definitely a North American one, but I really think that um, the approach of trying to convince people that they should they should accept that they're going to be renters for life is one that will uh, not be as effective if you're trying to achieve the policy goal of recruiting and retaining a certain level of workforce here. Yeah, but let me, uh, but let me build on what Dave said in, in a couple of ways. So uh, there's two separate issues. There is the, there the appropriate housing stock in the city of Vancouver, 
who, you know, I guess it's three, who, how are we going to tax treat different types of individuals? And uh, then what's the tenure going to be? Are people expected to own or rent in Vancouver? I personally think if there's decent rental options available, that's just fine. Uh, rental is poorly treated for tax purposes because your savings, uh, if you max out on your retirement accounts um, and the TFSA, you face different taxation than owner has, which is very tax favored. Putting that aside for the moment, uh, again, I want to be clear. When you ban townhomes or apartments from 80% of the land in Vancouver, which our zoning does, what you're doing is you're punishing uh, people who want the appropriate housing. Uh, and again, townhome, three-bedroom apartment can be just fine for a family if built properly. Uh, you don't need a single house with a yard to function as a family, and it's not appropriate for $20 million to $40 million an acre land. It's just not the right use. So you're not only punishing the workforce that's pushed out to the burbs, you're providing a subsidy to rich guys from outside the local economy with a taste for luxury housing. And let me explain that. The land value is pushed down when you limit what you can build on the land, and we have very austere limits which makes land in Vancouver much, much cheaper than it should be. So people with a taste for $20 million an acre land and luxury homes are being handed a gigantic subsidy, not only by our very low property tax rates, but by our zoning policy as well. So I think we really need to get a grip on this. It may be that the long-run future of Vancouver is a playground for rich people from all over the world. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a choice we need to make. But not only are we not really fighting that up until the 15% property transfer tax, with a lot of our policies, we're putting our thumbs on the scale to say, no, we don't want people living and working here. We want rich people from around the world to live here. And I think that's a pretty bizarre choice. And what I've tried to spend a lot of my last year to do is really expose that that is what a lot of the choices we make add up to. It's not crazy, look, you know, uh, a year ago, we were at 40% lower prices 10, 20 years ago when a lot of our policy directions were set. It was just a very different world. I think recognizing how mobile global capital has become and its taste for luxury housing in a small set of cities, uh, I think we have to evaluate the policy choices we make very clearly recognizing uh, the threat to the workforce. That, uh, I think that might be a good place for us to uh, to wrap things up. Well, thank you very much. That's definitely been an insightful discussion. I think it raises a lot of the same issues that we've the discussions that we've been having around levels in immigration and uh, in terms of shaping the, the type of society and the type of communities that we want to have and who do we want to bring in and what do we want these things to look at. And obviously, these things all converge in in these issues of everything from tax policy to real estate prices and everything else. So thank you very much for taking the time to come and talk yeah, to us. Thanks, what a total pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been the Borderlines podcast. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at www.borderlines.ca. You can also find us on Twitter, Borderlines CA. You can download the podcast from iTunes and SoundCloud. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review. It will help other people to find the podcast. Thank you very much to Robin Bajer and Funk in the Trunk for our music.
planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.